There is a pandemic in the Western world, especially, but not only in America, that few are talking about, let alone addressing. This pandemic doesn't actually kill people, but it does ruin lives, crush families, and cause debilitating pain, far more than most cases of COVID-19. What pandemic am I talking about? The pandemic of people who do not speak to one or both of their parents. Why have these people decided to hurt their parents in one of the worst ways possible, to the extent of not even allowing their parents contact with their grandchildren? There are three primary reasons. The first is the rise of the therapeutic mentality. Prior to the explosion of psychotherapy, people were governed by shoulds. But beginning in the 1960s, the therapeutic model replaced the moral model as the guide to one's behavior. A popular phrase at the time was, there are no shoulds. I'll use a family story to illustrate this point. Despite the fact that his mother was a very difficult woman, my father called her every night. And every night, she would yell at him. As a child, I heard this because instead of holding the phone to his ear, my father would periodically place the phone on the kitchen table. Had my father been born a generation later and told a therapist how much he dreaded calling his mother, the therapist would likely have led my father to believe there was no reason he should talk to her. The therapist would have declared my grandmother toxic and given my father permission to avoid calling her. A culture that declared there are no shoulds would have concurred. But my father lived in the age of shoulds. Moreover, he was a religious Jew who had been taught the Ten Commandments since childhood, the fifth of which is, honor your father and your mother. And he believed, as did most Americans, that the Ten Commandments were given by God. In our secular age, the Ten Commandments are largely ignored. In fact, there are no God-given commandments. Instead, you do what you feel is right. If you don't feel like talking to your mother or father, you don't. My father, governed by the Ten Commandments and many other shoulds, called his mother every night despite the fact that he rarely felt like doing so. A second reason for this pandemic is parental alienation. This is usually caused by one parent against the other during or after a divorce, frequently, though certainly not always, by the mother against the father. She is so angry at her ex-husband that she has decided to hurt him in one of the worst possible ways, by convincing one or more of their children that their father is a terrible human being, unworthy of their love, respect, or even time. The children should have nothing to do with him. A third reason for this pandemic is ideological. This is the newest excuse for cutting ties with parents. I suspect few people in previous generations encountered parents whose children didn't speak to them because of how the parent voted. Many Americans hated Richard Nixon, but it's hard to imagine grown men and women in the late 1960s or early 1970s who refused to speak to their parents because the parents voted for Nixon. But many parents who voted for Donald Trump have a child who does not speak to them. For the record, I am not speaking about myself. My two sons and two stepsons and I speak frequently, love one another, and share values. But 
I know how lucky I am. I have met a lot of good people who have at least one child who no longer speaks to them. Yes, there are times when a parent is so abusive, pathological, or evil that communication becomes essentially impossible. And it is important to note, you do not have to love your parents. Just talk to them. Even the Bible, which commands people to love their neighbor, to love the stranger, and to love God, never commands us to love our parents. But at the very least, we owe them this, not to inflict terrible pain on them. Indeed, the infliction of such pain on a parent is about as great an act of cruelty as most people will ever inflict on another human being. If there is a God who gave the Ten Commandments, these people will be judged accordingly. I'm Dennis Prager. If this video helped to clarify your thinking, please consider making a $5 donation at PragerU.com. Mention the Korean War today and most people will look at you with a blank stare. At the time it was fought, just five years after World War II ended, everyone recognized it as a world-shaping conflict, a stark confrontation between the forces of democracy and communism. It began on June 25, 1950, when Soviet-backed communist North Korea crossed the 38th parallel and invaded its U.S.-backed anti-communist South Korean neighbor. Within weeks, the communists had nearly absorbed the entire country. The United States at first was confused over whether it should or even could respond. America had slashed its military budget after the end of World War II and was short both men and equipment. It still had not awakened fully to the expansionist threat of Soviet Russia. The Soviets, buoyed by their own recent development of an atomic bomb and Mao Zedong's communist victory in China, sensed America's lack of resolve and encouraged the North's aggression. Yet within weeks, President Harry Truman rushed troops to save the shrinking Allied perimeter at Pusan on the southern tip of the Korean Peninsula. By late September 1950, General Douglas MacArthur had successfully completed the Incheon landings and launched counterattacks. He quickly reclaimed the entire South and sent American-led United Nations forces far into North Korea to reunite the entire peninsula, only to be surprised when hundreds of thousands of Chinese Red Army troops crossed the Yellow River at the Chinese border and sent the outnumbered Americans reeling back into South Korea. Thanks to the genius of General Matthew Ridgway, who arrived to assume supreme command in South Korea in December 1950, over the next hundred days, U.S.-led U.N. forces pushed the communists back across the 38th parallel. The fighting was fierce. Seoul, the capital of South Korea, exchanged hands between communist and U.S.-led forces five times before it was finally secured. During the years 1952 and 1953, the war grew static, neither side able to deliver a knockout blow. Eventually, the conflict ended with a tense armistice in July 1953. For over the next 60 years, a Cold War persisted between the Stalinist North and what by the 1980s had evolved into the democratic economic powerhouse of South Korea. Over 35,000 Americans died in the Korean War. The war marked the first major armed conflict of the nuclear age and one in which the United States had not clearly defeated the enemy and thus not dictated terms of surrender. Was fighting the Korean War and restoring the South without uniting the entire peninsula worth the huge cost in blood and treasure? 
The natural dividend of saving the South was the evolution of today's democratic and prosperous South Korea that has given its 50 million citizens undreamed of freedom and affluence and has blessed the world with top-flight products from the likes of Hyundai, Kia, LG, and Samsung. South Korea is a model global citizen and a strong ally of the U.S. and stands in sharp contrast to the communist regime in the North that has starved and murdered millions of its own people and caused untold mischief in the world community. Had it not been for U.S. intervention and support to the South, the current monstrous regime in Pyongyang would now rule all of Korea, ensuring its nuclear-armed dictatorship even greater power and resources. The American effort to save South Korea also sent a message to both Communist China and the Soviet Union that the free world, under U.S. leadership, would no longer tolerate communist military takeovers of free nations. The resulting deterrence policy helped to keep the communist world from attempting similar surprise attacks on Japan, Taiwan, and Western Europe. Finally, the Korean War awakened the United States to the dangers of disarmament and isolationism and led to the bipartisan foreign policy of containment of global communism that 1989 finally led to the collapse of the Soviet Union and with it victory in the Cold War. The Korean War was an incomplete American victory in its failure to liberate North Korea and unite the peninsula, but a victory nonetheless, and not just from a military perspective, but from a moral one as well. The reason 35,000 Americans died in Korea was to keep at least half the Korean people free. Korea did not have a single material resource that would have benefited America. The Korean War merits more than a blank stare. It deserves to be remembered and studied with pride. I'm Victor Davis Hanson of the Hoover Institution for Prager University. The year was 1862. America was in the depths of the Civil War. Looking back, it's easy to believe that a Union victory was inevitable. The North had more money, more population, more industry. But no one thought that at the time. In the first year of the war, it looked as if the South would win. A series of high-profile victories in the East convinced many that Confederates were better fighters under better leaders. Where would President Lincoln find a battlefield general who could do for the Union what Robert E. Lee was doing for the Confederacy? Lead it to victory. The man he found, the man who saved the Union, was Ulysses S. Grant. He wasn't Lincoln's first choice, or second, or third. In fact, when the war started in 1861, Lincoln had no idea who Ulysses S. Grant was. Hardly surprising, since at the time, Grant was selling hats to farmers' wives in a small town in Illinois. His rise to glory is one of the most amazing stories in American history. Born in Ohio on April 27, 1822, Grant had no ambition to be a soldier. His father pushed him into it, thinking he wasn't suited for much else. Grant's West Point career wasn't especially distinguished either. But during the Mexican-American War, 1846 to 1848, Grant proved himself to be an officer of unusual ability. He was cool under fire, daring but rarely reckless. Even more important, the men under his command trusted him. After that war, Grant returned to St. Louis to marry his fiancée, Julia Dent, the daughter of a slave-owning Missouri farmer. Grant was never happier than when he was with Julia, and he was never unhappier than when he was not. Unfortunately, in this period, army life forced them to be separated, sometimes for many months. To assuage his loneliness, Grant started to drink. While in a distant posting in Northern California, a thousand miles from Julia, his drinking got the better of him. 
he resigned his army commission to avoid an embarrassing court-martial. It was downhill from there, one business venture failing after another. By 1860, thoroughly humiliated with no money and no prospects, he was back working for his father in the small town of Galena, Illinois. Then the Civil War happened. The Union was in desperate need of experienced soldiers. Grant volunteered. His leadership skills were immediately obvious. He quickly advanced through the ranks. In a little more than six months, he scored two major victories at Fort Henry and Fort Donelson along the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. He followed these up with victory in the largest battle in American history up to that time, the Battle of Shiloh, making him a true Union hero in a cause that was starved for heroes. There was nothing flashy about Grant's generalship. All he did was win. Unlike the overly cautious generals that drove President Lincoln to distraction, Grant's battle plan was to always move forward, always put pressure on his foes. Any advantage the Union had in technology or manpower, he employed to the fullest. Like Napoleon, Grant was a superb reader of maps. He could identify the enemy's vulnerabilities and exploit them, as he did in his brilliant 1863 campaign for Vicksburg, a campaign that is still studied at war colleges. In March 1864, Lincoln made Grant commander of all the Union armies. It took more than a year of the war's hardest fighting before Lee surrendered and the war finally came to an end. By this point, the president and his general had developed a close bond. Shortly after Grant returned to Washington, Lincoln invited the Grants to join him and Mary Lincoln at Ford's Theater. Grant accepted. Julia, however, had developed an intense dislike for Mary Lincoln and insisted that her husband get out of the commitment. Embarrassed, Grant did. That night, in that theater, Lincoln was assassinated. As the commander of all Union armies, Grant was placed in a terrible bind, having to walk a tightrope between new President Andrew Johnson's pro-South agenda, which favored the old white aristocracy, and protecting, as Lincoln intended, the newly won rights of the freed slaves. He resolved his dilemma by deciding to run for president. Grant had saved America once as a general. Could he save it again as a politician? Running as the Republican candidate for president, Grant easily won election in 1868, becoming the 18th president of the United States. He won again in 1872. During his tenure, he fought to secure the passage of the 15th Amendment, which guaranteed all American citizens the right to vote, regardless of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. He created the Department of Justice, broke up the Ku Klux Klan, and advocated for the rights of Indians. He presided over the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad and a rapidly expanding industrial economy. There was a dark side to his presidency, however. His administration was dogged by charges of financial impropriety and he left office under a cloud. But Grant the man remained a popular figure. Just days before his death on July 23, 1885, he completed his autobiography. It became one of the best-selling books of the 19th century. Of Grant's amazing life, Frederick Douglass wrote a fitting epitaph. In him, the Negro found a protector, the Indian, a friend, a vanquished foe, a brother, an imperiled nation, a savior. I'm Gary Edelman, Chief Historian at the American Battlefield Trust for Prager University. Good news. Thinking for yourself is no longer necessary. The new heroes of the internet will do it for you. Companies you've never heard of, but who are watching out for your best interest. Meet one of them. They call themselves NewsGuard. A perfect name, because that's what they do. They guard the news. They make sure you only get the good stuff. The stuff you can trust. Best of all, 
NewsGuard is backed by Big Pharma, Big Tech, the teachers' unions, and even the government. So, if NewsGuard says something isn't safe to read, you know you should scroll on. I mean, if you can't trust the government, who can you trust? Wait, you don't like what I just described? Sounds more like a nightmare than the world you want to live in? You like to do your own thinking? You're perfectly capable of figuring out which sources are credible and which aren't? That, you say, is the right and obligation of a free citizen in a free country. If so, welcome to my world. I'm the CEO of PragerU. We're fighting against companies like NewsGuard every day. We didn't pick the fight, they did. We have our own take on the events of the day and the events of yesterday. We're happy to have you make your own judgment on whether we've got it right or whether we've got it wrong. But there are many organizations that don't have that attitude, like the aforementioned NewsGuard. Let's look a little more into this company, which, by the way, is a for-profit enterprise. PragerU is a 501c3, a nonprofit. We're big fans of profit. Profit makes the world go around. But if your business is, say, promoting COVID vaccine efficacy, and your biggest client is the public relations firm for Pfizer, it's fair to ask whether you'd be completely unbiased when judging a story questioning the safety of the COVID vaccine. But that doesn't trouble NewsGuard. They're convinced their judgments are free of any taint. Just ask them. They'll tell you. But who are they? Their co-founder and CEO is a Democratic Party loyalist. He's on record dismissing the Hunter Biden laptop as likely a hoax, maybe even perpetrated by the Russians. The NewsGuard staff, not surprisingly, is mostly comprised of left-leaning activists and ex-journalists. And guess who they don't like? Yeah, they really don't like PragerU, The Daily Wire, Breitbart, The Federalist, and other news and opinion sources that are not on the left. But let's not be too harsh. If you stray from NewsGuard's way of seeing things, they'll give you a chance to redeem yourself. Here's how it works. Out of the blue, they'll send you a list of accusatory questions on some hot-button issue. Could be COVID, global warming, or the World Economic Forum. If you play their game and respond, they'll ignore your answers and then pose new questions. If you don't respond, well, that just confirms NewsGuard's judgment that you're not a reliable source. Heads, they win. Tails, you lose. If you fail their test, and you will, NewsGuard informs their clients, PR firms, ad agencies, major corporations, that you're toxic and that they should run in the opposite direction. For news and opinion operations like Breitbart, The Daily Caller, or American Greatness that live largely on advertising, that can get very expensive very fast. It might drive you out of business if you don't comply. But of course, that's the plan. Mark Hemingway, an editor at The Federalist, went through this inquisition. He calls NewsGuard an extortion racket. Having also lived through this experience, I can confirm that assessment. NewsGuard works in another insidious way. Big tech titans don't like taking grief from the public or from politicians who complain that their companies are censoring non-left viewpoints. Now, thanks to NewsGuard and enterprise big tech funds, they have a place to hide. They say, we didn't make any judgments. We hired this third-party fact checker and they told us this story or that website can't be trusted. 
In short, NewsGuard enables them to censor speech without leaving any fingerprints. Awesome. And now the government has gotten into the act. The Defense Department paid NewsGuard over $700,000 to monitor misinformation trends online, which is an Orwellian way of saying information that the Defense Department doesn't like. Same thing for the teachers' unions. One of the largest, the American Federation of Teachers, has made a deal with NewsGuard to screen content that comes into classrooms. It's hard to get more left than the AFT. No need to guess what perspective they're counting on NewsGuard to screen out. So, if you don't want to think for yourself anymore, NewsGuard has got you covered. But if you do want to think for yourself, you've been warned. If NewsGuard has red flagged a source, all you need to know is that the left doesn't want you to read it, watch it, or hear it. And what does that make you want to do? I'm Marissa Streit for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. What is Zionism? It's certainly a word that provokes deep emotions, both from its supporters and its opponents. Is it a political movement? Is it a philosophy? Is it something new? Or is it something old? Actually, it's all of these things. But to summarize it in one sentence, Zionism is the belief that the Jewish people have a right to a homeland and that that homeland is the land of Israel, where the Jewish people came into being. This goes back to the most influential book ever written, the Bible. The book that brought the Ten Commandments to the world is the same book that brought Zionism to the world. And the word Zion, by the way, appears in the Bible as a synonym or nickname for both Jerusalem and Israel. It's not more complicated than that. In the book of Genesis, God makes an extraordinary promise to the first Jew, Abraham. I assign the land in which you sojourn to you and your offspring to come as an everlasting possession. And for 3,000 years, Jews have held fast to that possession. In fact, over those three millennia, there have only been three independent states on that land, and they have all been Jewish states. But to put it mildly, it has not been an easy road. The Romans thought they had finally kicked the Jews out in 70 AD when they destroyed the Great Temple and leveled Jerusalem to the ground. To finish the job, they even changed the name of the area to Palestine, but it didn't work. The Jews' connection to their land cannot be broken. And even as the Jews were scattered all throughout the world, their prayers were always directed towards Israel. So central to Jewish identity is Israel that the Bible invokes a curse against a Jew who doesn't acknowledge it. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand become paralyzed and may my tongue lose its ability to speak. Despite their long exile, there was always a Jewish presence in the Holy Land. And often desperately poor, this community was sustained by the charitable contributions of Jews living outside of Israel. This kind of medieval Zionism lasted for hundreds of years. Zionism, as a modern political movement, emerged in the late 19th century under the leadership of a remarkable Hungarian Jew. Theodore Herzl. A journalist and playwright, Herzl was shocked to his core when he witnessed the infamous Dreyfus trial in Paris in 1894. Alfred Dreyfus, a Jewish French army officer, was framed for the crime of treason, a crime he obviously didn't commit. The trial, which was an international sensation, was the tip of an iceberg of Jew hatred that had gripped much of Europe. If cultured Europe couldn't provide safety for its Jews, Herzl concluded the situation was hopeless. 
Haim Weizmann, a protege of Herzl's and later the first president of Israel, summed up the situation this way. For the Jews, the world is divided into places where they cannot live and places where they cannot enter. Herzl came to believe that there was only one answer for the Jews, to set up their own state where they could control their own destiny. They needed to return to Israel. Slowly but steadily, Jews throughout Europe migrated there. They started farms and carved cities like Tel Aviv out of the desert landscape. Herzl himself, though, died before he could even see these efforts bear fruit. But the momentum was there. Others continued what he had started. It was the rise of Nazism, the outbreak of World War II, and the Holocaust that made Zionism an existential issue. On November 29, 1947, the prayers of generations of Jews were finally answered. The United Nations voted to make Israel a state again, making the Jews the only people in history to have regained their homeland after having been exiled from it. Israel's had to fight three major wars, numerous minor ones, and endure endless terror attacks to hang on to it. But hang on to it, they have. Israel is now a nation of nearly 10 million people, one-fifth of whom are not even Jewish. Yet many still refuse to accept it. Consider this. The same time Israel became a state, so did Pakistan. But unlike Israel, Pakistan was a brand new state, carved out of India. There was no ancient connection to the land of Pakistan. There was no Pakistanism that was the equivalent of Zionism. Pakistan was simply wrenched out of India because the Muslims in that area demanded it. Millions of Hindus who lived there were forcibly expelled. Outside of India, few objected even at the time. And today, no one questions Pakistan's right to exist as a nation state. So why all the controversy? Why all the hatred directed toward Israel and the idea that the Jews have a claim to their ancient land, the Zionist idea? The answer to that question is as old as the Jewish people. It's called anti-Semitism, and it takes many forms. Anti-Zionism is just one of them. At its core, it's a hatred of all things Western. How else do you explain this coincidence? Those who most hate Zionism are the same people who most hate the United States. I'm CJ Pearson for Prager University. As Columbus Day dies a slow, woke death, it might be a good idea to consider how this national holiday came about in the first place. The answer might surprise you. Ready for it? The purpose of Columbus Day was to encourage Americans to be more accepting of immigrants, specifically Italian immigrants. The Italian explorer, once universally regarded as a great hero, was the symbol of the holiday, not the focus of it. Here's the historical context. Following a mass migration from southern Italy beginning in the 1880s, the status of Italian Americans was at an all-time low. How low was clearly illustrated by one of the single worst episodes of racial violence in American history. The mass murder and lynching of 11 Italian Americans in New Orleans in 1891. Hatred against the Italian newcomers had been brewing for years and was openly encouraged by leading newspapers of the day. For example, in 1882, the New York Times ran an editorial under the headline, Our Future Citizens, in which the Times stated, there has never been, since New York was founded, so low and ignorant a class among the immigrants as the Southern Italians. In 1887, the same New York Times wrote approvingly of the lynching in Mississippi of a man they referred to as Dago Joe, Dago being an ethnic slur for Italians. 
Anti-immigrant sentiment was especially intense in New Orleans where Italians were settling in large numbers. Local papers accused them of working for below market wages, engaging in all manner of crimes, and being more loyal to the Pope than the president. These seething resentments broke to the surface when the city's police chief, David Hennessy, was assassinated in the fall of 1890. As the chief lay dying in the street, a witness claimed to have heard him say that Dagos had shot him. In a response, authorities rounded up hundreds of Italians, eventually charging nine of them with complicity in Hennessy's murder. When their trial resulted in six not guilty verdicts and three mistrials, the public was outraged. Further inflamed by the local press, some decided to take justice into their own hands. According to journalist Aaron Blakemore, here's what happened. Thousands of angry residents gathered near the jail. Impassioned speakers whipped the mob into a frenzy, painting Italian immigrants as criminals who needed to be driven out of the city. A group of vigilantes stormed the prison, grabbing not just the men who had been acquitted or given a mistrial, but several who had not been tried or even accused in the crimes. Shots rang out. When the shooting stopped, 11 bodies were riddled with bullets and torn apart by the crowd. Outside the jail, the mob cheered as the mutilated bodies were displayed. Some corpses were hung, others were plundered for souvenirs. The next day, the New York Times celebrated the crime with a headline that read, Chief Hennessy Avenged, 11 of his Italian assassins lynched by a mob. These descendants of bandits and assassins are to us a pest without mitigations, the Times editors wrote. In protest, the Italian government broke off diplomatic relations with the United States. Tensions receded only after the U.S. government paid an indemnity to the Italians. Despite the New York Times' incendiary rhetoric, much of the country was outraged by the massacre. In his 1891 State of the Union address, Republican President Benjamin Harrison pledged to protect foreign nationals from mob violence. Then, in July 1892, Harrison issued a proclamation celebrating the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's discovery of the New World. It was a timely pretext to a greater purpose, to raise the status of a badly shaken Italian-American community. Harrison's proclamation did more. Italian-Americans now had a way to include themselves in the American story. And not surprisingly, New York City figured prominently in that narrative. In the late 19th century, one could say that Italian immigrants essentially built the city's infrastructure. According to the Library of Congress, they went to work on the growing city's municipal works projects, digging canals, laying gas lines, building bridges, and tunneling out the New York subway system. In 1890, nearly 90% of the laborers in New York's Department of Public Works were Italian immigrants. But of course, Italian Americans have made countless and enormous contributions to every area of American life over the nation's 250-year history. At least one signer of the Declaration of Independence was Italian American. Many cabinet members and Supreme Court justices have been of Italian descent. Not to mention legendary athletes like Joe DiMaggio, Nobel Prize-winning scientists like Enrico Fermi, and many prominent artists, actors, and actresses, including the most beloved singer in American history, Frank Sinatra. In 1937, President Franklin Roosevelt proclaimed Columbus Day an official U.S. holiday. But if a new mob has its way, it may not be one for long. I'm Alana Mastrangelo, reporter for Breitbart News for Prager University. It was April 1865. 
the Civil War was finally over. An exhausted, bloodied nation breathed a deep sigh of relief. And suddenly, shockingly, President Abraham Lincoln was dead, felled by an assassin's bullet while watching a play. To take the reins of power at this tumultuous moment required a great man, a man of compassion, discernment, and discipline. Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's vice president, was not that man. This is not to say he didn't have virtues. He did. He just didn't have the stuff it took to meet the moment. Born into abject poverty on December 29, 1808, Johnson was apprenticed, sold would be more accurate, to be a tailor at the age of 10. Legally bound to serve until he was 21, he ran away after five years. He eventually settled in Greenville, in Tennessee, where he set up his own tailor shop and prospered. In 1834, he was elected mayor of Greenville. From there, he climbed steadily up the political ladder. The state legislature in 1835, the U.S. Congress in 1843, governor in 1853, and the Senate in 1857. He was still serving as U.S. Senator from Tennessee in 1861 when the Civil War broke out. Although Johnson was a Democrat and a slave owner himself, when Tennessee left the Union to join the breakaway Confederacy and defend legalized slavery, Johnson denounced his state secession on the floor of the Senate. I will not give up this government, he thundered in December 1860. No, I intend to stand by it. And I entreat every man throughout the nation who is a patriot to come forward that the Constitution shall be saved and the Union preserved. After Union military forces occupied large parts of Tennessee in 1862, Lincoln tagged Johnson as the state's provisional military governor. It was a shrewd move on the president's part. It demonstrated to Southerners and Democrats that they were welcomed as full partners with Lincoln's Republican Party in restoring the Union. Johnson himself joined hands with Lincoln's policies by freeing his own slaves in 1863. A Southern Democrat who could embrace the ending of slavery was exactly what Republicans hoped would draw Democratic voters to support Lincoln's re-election bid in 1864. The Republican nominating convention duly replaced Lincoln's original vice president, Hannibal Hamlin of Maine, with Johnson as Lincoln's running mate. Johnson's career as vice president did not get off to a good start, to put it mildly. He showed up drunk at his and Lincoln's inauguration on March 4, 1865. Johnson had an excuse. He was seriously ill with what was probably typhoid fever. Unfortunately, he chose to medicate himself with whiskey. No one dreamt that only six weeks later, the Confederacy would collapse, Lincoln would be dead from an assassin's bullet, and Johnson would become the 17th president. At first, Johnson delighted the most radical members of Congress with promises that treason must be made odious. And when Johnson's attorney general moved to indict several dozen of the high Confederate leadership for treason, it appeared as though Johnson would take a hard hand in reconstructing the Union. It quickly became evident, though, that Johnson saw the South's plantation-owning and slave-owning elite as the sole cause of the Civil War. Poor Southern whites were merely the victims of a dangerous aristocracy of plantation gentry, and he began handing out wholesale pardons to all but the most prominent Confederates. 
His plan for reconstruction required the southern states to eliminate slavery, but Johnson saw no reason to extend voting rights, or many other rights for that matter, to the freed slaves. When a baffled Congress tried to seize control by adopting civil rights and reconstruction legislation of its own, Johnson vetoed their efforts. Ultimately, the Republican majority overrode those vetoes and imposed a reconstruction plan more favorable to the freed slaves. This only exacerbated the tension between Johnson and the legislative branch. And finally, in 1868, on the paper-thin pretext that he had illegally terminated one of his cabinet officers, Johnson was impeached by the House of Representatives. He missed conviction and removal by only one vote in the Senate. By that point, however, his presidency was effectively finished. After the election of Ulysses Grant, Johnson returned to Tennessee, where he still enjoyed some popularity. In January 1875, he staged a political comeback by winning election once more to the U.S. Senate. But in July, he suffered a fatal stroke. He was buried in Greenville, wrapped by his own request in an American flag. I'm Alan Gelzo, Distinguished Research Scholar and Director of the Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship in the James Madison Program at Princeton University for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. Asked to define the word woman during her Supreme Court confirmation hearings in 2022, Judge Ketanji Jackson famously demurred, saying, I'm not a biologist. Well, I am a biologist, and I'm here to help. To that end, let me rephrase the question to Judge Jackson. Are sex categories in humans, male and female, real, immutable, and binary, or are they merely social constructs? Answer, real. That's just the way it is, and we all know it. Immutable, it can't be changed. And binary, there are only two sexes not three or four or 57. This is true throughout the plant and animal kingdoms. An organism's sex is defined by the type of gamete, sperm or ova, it can or would produce. Males have the function of producing sperm or small gametes, and females, ova, or large ones. There is no third gamete type. There are only two. Therefore, sex is binary. This shouldn't be controversial. It's just basic biology. Every one of us is the result of a male and a female, our biological mom and dad, successfully reproducing. Sorry to make you think about that. Without the existence of males and females, I wouldn't be here right now, and neither would you. Our species would have gone extinct long ago. Many gender activists, however, falsely assert that sex cannot be binary and must be viewed as a spectrum because a very small number of people have genitalia that appear ambiguous or mixed phenomena known as intersex conditions. These ideologues claim the existence of such conditions renders the categories male and female meaningless. But intersex conditions don't undermine the sex binary at all, because sex ambiguity is not a third sex. The existence of very rare borderline cases no more raise questions about everyone else's sex than the existence of dawn and dusk cast doubt onto the existence of day and night. Our society isn't experiencing a sudden dramatic surge in people born with ambiguous genitalia. We're experiencing a dramatic surge in people who are unambiguously one sex 
claiming to identify as the opposite sex, or as something other than male or female altogether. Gender ideology seeks to portray sex as so incomprehensibly complex and multivariable that our traditional practice of classifying people as either male or female is grossly outdated and should be abandoned for a revolutionary concept of gender identity. This new system holds that males shouldn't be barred from female sports, women's prisons, or other spaces previously segregated so long as they identify as female. But intersex and transgender mean entirely different things. Intersex people have extremely rare conditions that result in apparent sex ambiguity. Transgender people, however, aren't sexually ambiguous at all, but merely claim to identify as something other than their biological sex. Once you're conscious of this distinction, you'll begin to notice that gender activists attempt to steer discussions away from, for example, whether men who identify as women should be allowed to compete in female sports, and toward prominent intersex athletes like South African runner Castor Semenya. Why? Because so long as they've got you on your heels, making difficult judgment calls on individuals with medically complicated intersex conditions, they've succeeded in drawing your attention away from making easy calls on unquestionably male athletes like 2022 NCAA Division I women's swimming and diving champion Leah Thomas. They shift the focus to intersex to distract from transgender. But the existence of a tiny handful of intersex cases is completely irrelevant to the issue of allowing males in female sports, prisons, and restrooms. Crafting policy to exclude males who identify as women, or trans women, from female-only spaces isn't complicated. That's because trans women are unambiguously male, and so the chances that a doctor incorrectly recorded their sex at birth are essentially zero. Therefore, any transgender policy designed to protect female spaces need only specify that participants must have been recorded female on their original birth certificates, or if no birth certificate listing sex is available, biology, not an individual's feelings, will determine whether the participant would be allowed to compete as a male or a female. Crafting effective intersex policies is more complicated, but a much less pressing issue for protecting the integrity of women's sports. Individual organizations can decide for themselves which criteria should be used to keep female spaces safe and, in the context of sport, safe and fair. It is imperative, however, that such policies be rooted in properties of the body and not one's identity, because identity is not germane to issues of fairness and safety. You can identify as anything you like, but your identity does not determine biological reality. And the reality is that sex in humans is immutable and binary. No amount of activist hysteria is ever going to change that. I'm Colin Wright. PhD in Evolutionary Biology and Fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.